another Undoing the Way podcasts are done. This is Background Noise from Undoing, a podcast about entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs, by entrepreneurs. And because we're bootstrappers too, we shun the convention of expensive microphones and studios and keep the conversations real, raw, uncut, and usually full of background noise, but not these days. Today, the founders of Revita Clean Energy Tea. Stick around, we'll gladly fill up some of your time. This is Background Noise. Jacobson and Rob Wade had no business, nor much interest for that matter, in starting up an energy drink company. Until, like everyone else featured on this podcast, they saw a missing in the market. And that missing was energy drinks that actually tasted good, gave a boost, and were made entirely of healthy ingredients. We spoke with Mitch and Rob over Zoom, like everyone else these days. But first, I spoke with Mark Bobin, my partner in crime at Undoing, from basement to basement to break down the interview with the founders of Revita. We're into, what, week two of online classes, you and I, and doing our thing with students and filling every minute in between classes with meetings. Yeah, it is a changing paradigm, that's for sure. And I mean, we had a conversation a week ago about what to do with last week's topic and podcast and discussion and stuff. And it's just, things are changing so constantly. And, you know, whenever you listen to something from this time or watch something from around this time, or even two weeks ago, it's, 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 some of it is just so dated and so different than what it is like now. So, I mean, the one interesting thing is, is that this podcast, you know, there was a lot of interesting, you know, discussions and themes. It was quite a, a wide ranging a broad range of things that were discussed and and it was, so it really was you know something that I took away from it is there's some universal things that they're doing and they're trying to do that go beyond just the current state of where we're in or whatever else like that and it's not about how to start a business but it is a a pretty interesting story so as you sort of sat down and chatted with them you know what are some of the things that you saw you know from, from a competency perspective wherever you want to take this sort of as your big sort of takeaways from, from meeting with them. I was introduced to them, I think in the fall of 2019, they came in to say, to present to our fourth year BBA students um, as part of what we call a capstone course at say real life business case situations. And Rob and Mitch of Revita had made themselves available to do this. That's when I first met them. I next saw them in January when the course started and found them immediately amenable to just about anything. They would answer requests from students when they would email them about any level of minute detail, whether it be, um, you know, what's your packaging made of to what's your forecasted sales for the second quarter of 2020. So very responsive and amenable to that. And so by the time we finally got together for, for an interview, all of these things were sort of background knowledge to me. But then I learned how resourceful they were as well, kind of in the face of COVID. They, like everybody else, 
we're looking not for an angle, not for a way to, to get ahead in this, but for looking for a way to genuinely do something with their product that could actually impact things positively. And um, we'll hear about that in the podcast. That's a bit of a spoiler alert. It has to do with hospitals. But I found that creative. And I've also felt found for a couple of guys that um, really claim to have no marketing communications expertise and knowledge. So they, they seem to be doing a lot of things well and right with their messaging, with their branding, with their consistency. So I think their communications skills are on point. I think that in the early stages when discovering this product or this product idea, which is an energy tea drink, certainly curiosity had to be a part of their story. So of all of our competencies that we discuss, in, in some ways you can make a case that they use them all. That's probably emblematic of all entrepreneurs, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes when you get just to highlight one, sometimes that's good if it's a shorter piece like the Daily Undoing, but for something like this, I think it's quite good to look at a broad range of them because a lot does come in. I mean, you talked about communication with the student groups. You talked about you know the way that they dealt with marketing communications. Well, if you listen to the podcast, just how good they are at listening to your questions and answering in really respectful ways. Like uh, I took away that there's a lot that can be learned just from people like that who really do take communication, something like that and, and do something with it. So wh wh when we're about to listen to this now, what do you, what do you sort of want people to take away from this? I mean, is it because of COVID or despite COVID sort of where, where, where do you want sort of people to, to land? If you're doing an interview with anybody in March, 2020 forward, you can't avoid that topic. It's, it's just that pervasive. So there is that angle, but I think that we made a point of, of talking about the journey leading up to the launch, talking about the launch of their second product, which literally I think went out to market March 8th. So days before. Oh that the earth started to tilt in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, but I think the takeaway is you mentioned it, despite the fact that they've launched and you know, they've got this, this business and it's a tangible product that you can find in grocery stores and it's kind of on trend and it's cool and they remain grounded and humble. And, um, and you're right. I mean, not only were they responding to my questions, but you could almost hear their brains kind of firing into an extra gear thinking, Oh, geez, you know, maybe we should think about that angle or something that I might have asked in an innocent question, set them off in a different direction of thought. So I think that's the big thing. You're never too, too big to learn. I think the true winners in, in business, big and small, are those that remain grounded and um, just willing to pick things up in the wind as things kind of blow along. Well, let's, uh, with no further ado, let's uh, have a listen. Why don't we just pretend that there's no COVID 19 for the moment and take us back to a, a gentler more stable time when you guys decided that starting a new energy drink company was a good idea absolutely i guess the origins of this date back david about three years so rob and i we were working downtown and we can never find a healthy afternoon pick-me-up right you have all these people in the office they're drinking one two three cups of coffee a day a 2 p.m crash comes around and Everyone drinks coffee still, but they don't want to, right? It's maybe not the most refreshing thing, but what else is there? And that's when we really identified that there was this massive problem. There wasn't something that was healthy and a good alternative to coffee and energy drinks. And that was the origins of the business was identifying that problem. Now, there was also sort of a personal tipping point, wasn't there? Yeah, there sure was. So you know, Rob and I, our best friend at the time, he was 21 years old. 
and he was drinking a lot of conventional energy drinks and he actually had a heart attack uh, related to one. I drove him to the hospital that night and this was, that was kind of the aha moment that there's a real problem here. Energy drinks, they clearly solve a problem. People need energy, but they're probably not the best thing to be putting in your body. And, and that was the experience that really lit a fire under us to take actionable steps to solve this problem. So describe the solution. Yeah, the solution was, one was laying out the problem. You know, what exactly is it? Who is experiencing this problem? And then how can we fix it? And one of the things that we went back to over and over again what it was that it was professionals, health conscious people that were experiencing this problem a lot. And there really just wasn't a product out there that you know had the calories, had the ingredients, had the branding that they could relate with and they could feel good about putting in their body. And so the solution started with identifying all those little problems and really we always say this, we reverse engineered our product. We looked at who was going to buy this, what they wanted in a product, and then we worked our way backwards to create something that really was going to appeal to those people. You know, early on as an experiment, when I was working downtown Calgary, I actually bought a monster, one of those black monster cans, and I put it on the corner of my desk. And I could not believe how many people came into my office and said, what are you doing drinking that? Are you okay? And that really got me thinking that not only is Monster perceived by these people to be unhealthy, but there's something about the brand that professionals just don't want to be associated with. So it was that combination of all of those things that led us to solve this problem that we identified. That's really interesting. So you're telling me that the, 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 what you gathered from that little fleeting moment was a perception of monster energy drinks and i guess we could throw the other usual suspects into that category in some way in certain contexts represented a problem based on people's biases against those products that's exactly right and they're they're great products they certainly solve a problem they just don't appeal to certain demographics and they've branded you know if you look at their branding it's more you know you see the 18 to 25 year old extreme athletes drinking them you're not really seeing a guy in a suit or a girl in a suit downtown you know running around the plus 15 with a monster they just don't want to be associated with a brand like that and, and we saw that there wasn't just a physical problem with these these products with in terms of the ingredients but there was a social problem because professionals and health conscious people just couldn't associate with these brands now aside from that chance encounter in your office what which which is great. Sometimes it's those things that, that do create or add to an, an aha. What's, what sort of other market research did you undertake to arrive at this formula? Great question. So we did, you know, just like you do with your state students, we did a really in-depth, you know, market research, looking at the demographics of who is buying certain products. And one of the things that Rob and I, that we, we found was really interesting is if you look at the demographics of who's buying, you know, full sugar energy drinks and then who's buying the sugar-free ones, and they're very different. You know, so a, a full, you know, original Red Bull with, you know, 60 grams of sugar or Monster, the demographic is skewed towards the 16 to 23, uh, primarily male, a little bit lower income. And then when you look at the sugar-free versions, that demographic is more skewed towards the 25 to 40, a little bit higher income, a little bit more professional and so what we looked at that as is these 
these drinks are solving a problem for that demographic, but we don't, we think we can do it better than they can. We can do a better branding job branding and we can use better ingredients that these people are going to relate to on a bit on a greater level. And so we spent a lot of time really researching the demographics of who was buying what. And, and during that research, did you come up with some of the idea around the inputs to your drink? presented to you in in some of those interviews and in some of those surveys did did you get some ideas in terms of ingredients from that or did you extrapolate from that and then go forward and think okay well here's what we need to put in it then yeah we definitely took a lot of feedback from people what they were saying a lot of people said they didn't like how energy drinks made them feel jittery how they had a big crash after so we looked at what was causing that and it's not usually the caffeine, it's the combination of the caffeine with the taurine and all these other chemicals. So we decided that if we could just have a drink that had only caffeine and none of these chemicals, no taurine, that we would eliminate that jittery feeling, that crash and any of those, the, the spikes that are associated with the high sugar as well. Exactly. And, and early on, we never planned for Revita to be an energy tea per se. Tea was something that just came to us in our research. And what we found is tea naturally contains you know fibers called tannins and and an amino acid called L-theanine which there's research that shows that it can actually slow the release of the caffeine into your bloodstream and so the effects that you're gonna receive from drinking caffeine from tea and drinking caffeine from say coffee or an energy drink are very different but we didn't go into the business plan you know expecting to use tea it was something that came from our research and to go back to your earlier points there's um there's a stigma around tea, just as there is around coffee and around traditional energy drinks. And I suppose in this case, it was a positive stigma. It was, this is a kinder, gentler way to get what you need in terms of that afternoon boost. That's exactly right. Yeah, tea is tea's healthy. Tea has a lot of antioxidants and a lot of fiber in it that are healthy. It's not uh, a bad source of caffeine. It's a, it's a really healthy source of caffeine for people to be drinking. Okay, so you you start to piece together what goes into this package, and then you probably start to think, wait a minute, what about packaging? Yeah, that's again a really great point. And and when we originally started the business plan, we thought this was either going to be in a glass bottle or a can. And one of the great things about the experience Rob and I I had in oil and gas. And we spent a lot of time working on sustainability and environmental issues in oil and gas. And we learned that when you're truly evaluating how environmentally friendly something is, you have to look at the full life cycle of the product. For instance, a can, it's infinitely recyclable, which is amazing. But when you look at, you know, the aluminum mines, you know, the amount of water and energy is used to recycle the cans, but also you know, these cans come fully formed. So they take up a lot of space. So there's a lot of carbon emissions that are wasted in transporting these cans. And we thought, how can we solve this problem? How can we do something that's totally different? And we came across flexible packaging. And the beauty of flexible packaging is it doesn't come from a mine. You know, it's, it's man-made in a factory and then it can be shipped flat. So it takes up, you know, usually 10 to 20 times less space than a can or a glass bottle which means there's that many less trucks, that many less boats, there's that much less carbon emissions. And we truly believe that this is the packaging of the future 
And this is how we're going to lower our carbon footprint as a whole as a planet is with packaging like this. Now, what about the afterlife of the packages? Are they fully recyclable? Yes. So they, they are recyclable. So our package you can take to a bottle depot and get a 10 cent deposit. And there's different programs. Some, there's some programs where the, the plastic actually can be burned really efficiently with low emissions and used and turned into diesel fuel. And then the aluminum layer on the inside can be recovered. There's also recycling programs in the States and there's a lot of research being put into this for the pouches to be repurposed into other products, like such things like that um, plastic that decks are made of. I can't remember. Duradeck. Duradeck. Yes, yeah, so there's programs now where they're being turned into Duradeck and it's only gonna evolve as you know more and more companies are using this flexible packaging. Now, if it, if it is that sort of ultimate answer to many different operational problems, why isn't that format being more widely used? I think one of the problems is the negative connotation that plastics have and how we're trying to, everyone wants to use biodegradable plastics and you know no use single plastics, but again, it comes back to that full life cycle is that glass and aluminum are actually more, they're, they're less, carbon efficient, they're worse for the environment than these, the plastics. And the problem with a lot of the biodegradables is that they turn into microplastics. So then we have the problem of microplastics in the ocean and all the fish and the whales. So I don't think there's really a, it, it's definitely a better use than any of the other formats out there. Yeah, and there's, I think it's just society as a whole, everyone looks at environmental sustainability different. You know, a lot of people think that it just means, if your package is recyclable, that means that it's very environmentally friendly, but you know, we like to look at it in terms of the whole life cycle, you know, from where it was made to, you know, how it's either disposed or recycled at the end and what's the impact of all of that. And I, we believe this packaging just hasn't made its way to North America yet. And it's, it's widely used in China, one, because of the connotations somewhat of plastic, but two, it's, there's definitely challenges working with it. You know, there's not a lot of manufacturers that are set up to fill these packages we've had, we've encountered lots of manufacturing problems. So there's lots of research and development and, and dollars that need to be spent on the actual, you know, filling these pouches and using them for beverages before they're going to be wide, you know, used in the mainstream. They're definitely a differentiator for you from a branding standpoint. I want to get to the whole branding discussion in a minute, but before we go, what, what sort of cost uh, differences did you encounter between using these and something much more widely accessible, traditional, and I would expect cheaper. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt that our packaging is going to be a little bit more expensive than, than cans or glass bottles. And one of the, the challenges that we face is these manufacturing facilities that can fill beverage pouches, you know, they'll fill, you know, hundreds of, of units per hour, whereas, you know, canning manufacturers fill thousands of units per hour. So as you can imagine, that just you're paying more for manufacturing costs, but it's not so significant that we can't be competitive. And we believe that, you know, long term, as we're able to invest into more research and development and these packages become more widespread, we'll be able to get our costs down in the long run. Now that you're a couple of months into this, um, it is and it is a couple of months since you've actually had product on shelves. Was it November of last year? Yeah, it was October approximately when we got into our first store and we're now in about 60. Right. So now that you see, 
your beverage up on shelves against others. It must be, uh, maybe it's past the surreal point, but what does it feel like to see you alongside some of these other brands? Oh, it's definitely still surreal. It always puts a smile on our face when we walk into a store and see us planted next to all these big beverage brands. It's always, it's always to me an interesting story when I hear an entrepreneur who's, who's produced um, a consumer good. Um, as they recall their first sighting in the wild. Of <laughs> Can you describe yeah. that? When, when and where were you? Well, our very first store is, was another amazing local company called Plains Breaker Apparel in the core mall. And they've just been phenomenal to us. And I think Rob and I remember that day very well. We put a fridge in there and it was our, you know, our very first store. And it was just, we were in awe, I think, to, to walk through a mall and see our product carried somewhere. But one of the things that we found is, you know, with every new store that we add, it's exciting, but, you know, it's never enough. We, we need so much cash flow to sustain this business that we constantly have to be pushing for more. And now the challenge isn't so much getting it on the shelf, it's getting it moving off of the shelf. And that's where we're allocating most of our time and effort to. It's actually, it's relatively easy to get it into stores. The, the real challenge is the marketing and how to get consumers buying it and getting it moving off the shelf. All right. What, what do you think is the greatest subcomponent of that challenge what do you what's your biggest barrier now let's again let's put aside the the chaos evolving in the world around covid and just talk about if it didn't exist what would be your biggest challenge in terms of marketing it's how you figure out how to get the masses to know about your product when you don't have a big marketing budget you know, we can't compete with the marketing budget of Coke and Red Bull and Monster and even some of these big, you know, kombucha and tea companies. So we have to spend a lot of our resources on guerrilla marketing, which is, you know, getting in stores, doing sampling. And it's, it's things that take a lot of time and effort. And our biggest challenge right now is figuring out a balance between allocating our time doing that, but also still running the operational piece of the business. Some would just say you're you're in the greatest time in in human history of marketing with this little thing called social media at your disposal. And I mean, I have um, I've certainly witnessed what you've been doing on social, and it's pretty impressive. But you seem to be having a growing um, number of fans, so that must help. But what you're telling me is it's it's not nearly enough. No, it's it's an amazing part. We love the social media. We love being able to connect with all of our all of our consumers and all of our friends on there. We've built such a great community and met a lot of great people, but you can only really impact so many people on social media unless you're spending a ton of money or you have a massive account. So there's still that aspect of reaching everybody. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge component of our marketing plan, but our, our biggest plan is getting out in the community, creating relationships and truly trying to help people with our brand. You know, that's the fundamental aspect of, of everything that we do is we want to help people, you know, and, and right now, for instance, like we're because of the coronavirus, we can't sample in any of our stores. And that's been our main marketing strategy is, is getting into stores and sampling. So now instead of that, we're going to go to hospitals and, and places that, you know, people that are doing an amazing job with the coronavirus, we're going to drop off free samples for them. We're going to find other ways to get out in the community and help people and get our product in the hands of 
of people and get the word out there through just adding value to people's lives. Resourceful, opportunistic instinct there, gentlemen. Thank you, David. We really appreciate that. Now tell me though, this could not have been something you budgeted for. And the news is unendingly bleak when you talk about small businesses and the sacrifices they're having to make and large percentages being shaved off of their sales in 24 hour periods. And it seems that in a lot of cases, and maybe it is in yours too, rather than retreating into a more conservative mode, it seems like you're going on the aggressive. I mean, going and stocking emergency um, and or medical facilities with what it amounts to sunk costs um, is not a cheap marketing strategy. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And one of the, Rob and I were just talking about this yesterday. If you look at Coca-Cola during the Second World War, you know, you can imagine the panic and the hysteria and, and how that threatened their business. And the CEO of Coke at that time actually used this as, as an opportunity where he shipped out, you know, millions, I think it was billions of units eventually to all of these soldiers on the front lines of the war. And he said, you know, Coke was a small taste of home. And that's what ultimately blew up Coke's brand and made them an international, an international brand and really helped their business. And we're looking at this, we're trying to look at it in a positive light, that this is an opportunity to help the people that need it the most. And this is an opportunity to get our brand out there and have people understand that what our core values are and what we're all about. And, you know, we, we don't spend money on advertising. So our entire marketing budget is just giving out free units. And so we're just allocating all of that now to the people that need it the most who are on the front lines of this coronavirus. Now let's talk about the branding because um, it is distinct. We've talked about the, the, the pouch format that it comes into. Um, and, and I think I have not seen a real one in my hands, but with your second flavor, there's, I think your, your strategy is to differentiate flavors by color. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let, let, let's start from, let's, let's back up a bit before we get to the flavors and, and the expansion plans on that and, and talk about the name that no one can pronounce. And yet, uh, when I had you in my class, you said that's almost by design what you wanted to occur. Yeah, absolutely. We did. And we went through, I couldn't tell you how many iterations of names and how many thousands of dollars we spent on trademark searches. And in our research, what we found is that the strongest brands in the world have a very unique name that's not associated with anything. There's no prior associations to that word that they created. And you look at you know brands like Nike, Adidas, uh, even Apple or Amazon, because they're very obscure words in terms of what their business is. There's no previous associations to that. So we wanted to really replicate that with our brand. And we were always in love with this word revitalize. It means to imbue with new life and vitality. And that's really fundamental to how we want to operate our businesses. We want to help people. We want to renew them with new vitality. And so we shortened that to Revita. And then we wanted to spell it very uniquely so that there was no previous associations. And we intentionally spelled it so that it was a little bit difficult to pronounce so that when people found out how it's really pronounced Revita and not Revita or Arvita, that it would stick more in their brain, right? Just like everyone called Nike Nike at the beginning and now it's Nike. It's a very powerful branding strategy. Yeah, that's creates a conversation around how to actually pronounce it. Yeah, once again, I'm, I'm impressed with the intuitiveness that you 
possessed. Maybe it's patience as well, um, you know, to go in that route because I still find myself calling it Revita. Um, and I'm not sure why, because Revita makes more sense. But to your point, it, it creates, there's a bit of mystique around it, right? Until such time that it breaks through as a blue chip brand, you know, people will call it Revita, Revita. I heard you say R. Vita, which I had not heard before, but <laughs> I used to always call it Arvita. <laughs> Arvita, yeah. Well, and, and you know, but now that you think about it, and the packaging certainly helps the the design and whatnot. Um, and then I think when you taste it and when you see what's behind it, you guys and everything else, the word revitalized certainly comes to the top. Thank you. Yeah, that's that was their plan all along, and it's. It sounds like we were thinking ahead and we had originally thought of that, but we really just learned by making mistakes. So, I, you know, we've told the story that we were a year and a half in. We went with an entirely different brand name. We had a whole packaging design. We spent tens of thousands of dollars on this. And then one of our business mentors came to us one day and said, hey, did you guys do a trademark check? And we looked at him funny and said, trademark check? What do you mean a trademark check? And so we found a lawyer and that lawyer called us a few days later with the bad news that you know, if we continued on with our current brand name, we we're going to have a cease and desist within, you know, a week because there's another brand that had that trademark. So that's really when this research and this learning came from and how we, we came up with the name is because we ultimately, you know, wasted a lot of money and, and made some big mistakes early on. Probably doesn't hurt in the, um, the domain search either to have something spelled rather obscurely. <laughs> that, yeah, that's exactly right. Having, you know, being able to have the domain rviita.com is just so powerful for, you know, people searching your brand and, and SEO and all of that. And that really factored into why we chose the spelling as well. Now, okay, so you, you came to market with, um, with your original flavor and now you're out with your second. Why don't you speak to the two flavors you have out now and, and how um, you know, from a pure product standpoint, how those were developed and um, why those flavors? Absolutely. So both of our flavors right now have the, the same core ingredients. So it's black tea, organic honey, fruit juices. So either strawberry juice in the case of our divine flavor or blackberry juice in the case of our midnight flavor and some vitamins. It's just clean, simple ingredients. And it's this really refreshing pure taste that most people are very surprised by because it doesn't taste like a conventional tea or a conventional energy drink it's really a refreshing blend and how we came up with that formula was really just trial and error and iteration it took about two years of going back and forth you know started in our kitchen and then we went from that to hiring a professional food scientist and we in terms of how we chose the ingredients, initially we drank probably two to 300 different energy drinks and took notes on all of them, what we liked, what we didn't like. We did research on you know, how, caffeine, how caffeine interacts with other ingredients and we were very careful because we didn't want that jittery feeling. And then from there, we chose a core list of you know, five, six ingredients that we wanted to use and just went back and forth, like I said, over the process, course of two years to really refine the taste and refine the, the energy component. How did those first ones taste? Horrible, <laughs> really, really bad. We did a whole blind taste test where we set up about 10 other energy drinks that we wanted our drink to taste like, that we thought tasted good. And we sampled it out to our friends and family. And we ranked last among everybody. We were always 
second last or last. And it was pretty discouraging. And I even wrote that it tasted like battery acid in, in, in my taste test, which didn't bode so well. Yeah, it was really difficult early on because we, again, we didn't know what we're doing. We're oil and gas guys, we're not food scientists or beverage guys. So some of the ingredients that we chose early on, which were some amino acids, they, they just didn't blend well together. They didn't taste well. But once we removed those, it continually got better and continually got better. And now in blind taste tests, we continually rank, you know, first among, you know, very, very well-known brands. And the number one feedback we get is, I can't believe how great this tastes. But it, it came through a lot of hard work and a lot of disappointment and down days. But we knew how important it was for it to taste really good because even you know, Red Bull, we don't think really tastes that great or a lot of the, the, the monsters either. And people agree, but they, they you work well. So if we thought if we could come up with a drink that actually tasted good and had a functional portion that we could actually compete in that market. The discussion reminds me of a book that I'm listening to now called Alchemy, and I strongly recommend it to you guys. You'd love it because I think the opening chapter talks about the Red Bull legend, um, you know, goes against every inch of convention, um, charged twice as much for something twice as small and tastes horrible and still <laughs> becomes an iconic brand. Um, and his, his hypothesis is that sometimes there's no way to figure out the difference between logic and then he uses a hyphen psycho logic um we just don't always behave as we're expected and as a result um the fact that most business decisions are based on pure logic and rationale and algorithms and calculations we sometimes still get it wrong so not to say that you should go back to formula one and reissue that but I think when you can when you can nail the flavor and the effect, you're you're probably using logic in the the wisdom that that comes from a book like that, right? You're 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 taking the best of both worlds. That's brilliant, absolutely, David. And we we really look up to to Red Bull as a brand. And we'll, you know, I think the fact that they're not necessarily the best tasting drink and they've done so well really just speaks to the problem that they're solving. People are willing to sac, you know, when they first launched, people were willing to sacrifice taste for that energy component. But in, in today's market, you have to solve, you know, both problems. It's got to taste great and you have to solve the problem and you have to solve the problem better than the brands that are already out there. And that was, you know, when we were formulating, that was our mission was to accomplish both of those things. But the going back to, to, to that hypothesis, and it's one that I believe in as well, maybe that's why it resonates so much, is that the the problem being solved with something like red bull may not be flavor for sure or energy but more about look at me i'm youthful exuberant adventurous extreme edgy all of these things it's sort of like you know the starbucks um empire was really built on the notion that if i can be seen carrying around this white and green cup well, i'm really somebody it's exactly right. It's about a lifestyle, right? The brand has become a lifestyle more than just a beverage. In both cases, you're right. Starbucks, people want to be seen with just a Starbucks cup. You know, a lot of people fill it up with water again throughout the day just so they can be seen with that luxury piece. It's perceived as a luxury item. That's a higher lifestyle that people want to achieve. Yeah, that's a brilliant comment, David. And that's why you're the, the marketing guru and the marketing expert. And, you know, Rob and I, we really look up to those brands. You know, why can Louis Vuitton charge $1,500 for 
you know, a purse or a bag and these other brands like Coach, it's, you know, a third of that, but people will pay it. And we, we really were cognizant of that when we were developing our brand is we didn't want to just solve that problem, but we also wanted to create something that people were going to have a sense of pride carrying around because a beverage being inherently portable was also a fashion statement. And, and it leads naturally into the conversation about price as well, right? Because this was something that obviously I, I talk about, you, you've got really two borders in how you set your price. One is your cost and one is demand. And then you've got a lot of room in between there to figure out where, where you land. And, and then it, a lot of it just comes down to psychology. So true. Yeah, Rob and I talk about this all the time. You know, we, people perceive a product's value based on its price. And so when we were, and we went back and forth on pricing a lot, and there's really two components that factored into it. You know, the most important was we still have to be profitable long term. And, you know, our costs being a startup and using a different kind of packaging are high. But two, it's also a marketing decision. You know, we want, we chose a higher price point because we are a premium luxury product and we need to be perceived as such. We're using better ingredients we're using a better package so it's going to come at a cost and you know when you go if you were to buy a ferrari and it was the same price as a honda civic you know you wouldn't perceive it as any better than the honda you'd say well why is the price the same if it's so much better than the other so we had to price ourselves higher than the beverages that we were competing against now so, so you're in the market with a couple of products um two flavors and and then this happens um and in fact i think you launched your second flavor within days of covid becoming ubiquitous here in north america was that right what was the date of release of midnight yeah it was i'd say we launched in a co-op two weeks ago and that was really when we launched our launched our new flavor midnight so it was pretty much right when <laughs> this covid you know struck north america and everything was shutting down and at, at the time that we're doing this podcast, it's impossible to even predict what's going to happen to anything, anybody, any product tomorrow, never mind in, in two weeks, although I do intend to get this to air sooner than that. But, you know, what you've, you've talked about how, how you're going, you're putting the pedal to the metal in terms of getting this product out there in, in light or maybe because of the situation. But um, if you could think clearly and beyond the, the point that this kind of goes away, um, what kind of growth plans would you foresee coming with Revita? Great question. And we think, you know, that this COVID, it's not going to impact our growth plans at all. We feel like we have a product that truly helps people. It needs to be in the hands of consumers. And what we found so far from our, our 60 retail locations is we move really well in grocery. That seems to be you know, the optimal spot for us to be. And so our growth plan <clears throat> is we're just about to launch in the Safeway and then Save on Foods is, is also going to list us. So we're going to you know, aggressively scale into those retail channels here over the course of the next few months. And we'll pro we're primarily focused on Calgary and Edmonton. And then once we, we have product moving off the shelves and we're helping people in both of those cities, we'll expand to the rest of the province here and then throughout Western Canada. So Vancouver would logically be the next best place for us and it's just taking it one store at a time helping one you know client at a time what have you learned in in going from that singular retailer 
um, that partnered with you in the beginning to now hitting the major grocery chains? We've learned a lot. I think, you know, the number one learning that we've taken away from retail is, you know, we initially thought that the hard part was going to be getting it into the stores, right? Finding a way to contact the buyer in these locations. But that's, I don't want to say it's easy because it's not, but it's the challenging part really is getting the word out there, getting into these stores and making sure that your merchandise is in a good spot because your sales can, you know, be tenfold in, in a, a fridge in front of co-op as opposed to, you know, the bottom corner of a shelf in some random mile. And so the, the challenge, what we've learned is it takes a lot more time and effort, you know, making sure that Rob and I are actually in the stores creating relationships with the managers and the employees and actively making sure that our products are merchandised properly so that they are given the best possible chance to be in the hands of, of amazing clients. Yeah. You get, you know, when you read marketing theory, you, you kind of get the sense that you do one or the other, you use a push strategy, which is what you're doing in, in communicating face to face with store owners and, and purchasers of big chains or you do a pull strategy, you know, where you you spread a marketing message in as many different directions as you can, like peanut butter, you know, across social media and advertising and everything else. Um, when re in reality, you kind of have to do both, and it must be difficult with really an army of two. Yeah, we we sure do. We're very fortunate that we have uh, my sister actually, Carly, who runs our social media, and she's more in charge of the poll. So that's a, a really great way to put it, David. So she does a lot of the polling with, you know, online marketing, running our social media. And then, you know, Rob and I are, are really a lot of the times the push guys, which is, you know, doing the stuff that a lot of people don't want to do, which is getting into the stores, talking to people. You know, we face a lot of rejection. We, we have, you know, a lot of days that are really tough, but, you know, those are the things that, that push our business forward. I need to end on some positive note such as that, uh, I'm gonna ask um, just a couple more questions and go to the lows and the highs as we end off today. But, um, and again, let's, let's try and pretend a world without coronavirus. What, what was or, or is your biggest challenge or biggest surprise as an entrepreneur that you haven't talked about already? That's a really great question. And- <laughs> One you can't you know, answer? <laughs> yeah, we've already so I good. Already I can't answer it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> we've already alluded to it a lot. You know, we really thought, you know, Rob and I, if if you create a great product, people will come, and it's really not that simple. And we see it not just with our brand, but other you know startups that we're really close with. You, it is your responsibility to get it in the hands of people, and it's your responsibility to tell your story just having a great product doesn't cut it nowadays you have to you know it's everything that you preach david it's all the marketing it's all of the getting out in the community it's doing the hard stuff it's it's harder to get the word out there than we thought and that's been the greatest challenge for us is how do we figure out how the entire city of calgary is going to know about revita and know what it can do for them but not spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on advertising you know how can we accomplish that with a much smaller budget and still get the same result. Well, hopefully we can uh, we can look back and say that um, you know we were one of the early evangelizers of Revita, and that uh, 
a few people listen to this podcast and listen to other podcasts as you make your way through them, because I'm sure you're going to be invited on too many. And soon it's morning talk shows and um, those those kiosks and pop-ups and the, the supermarket and chains that you're talking about will be uh, more than you can more than you can handle by yourselves. And you'll have to you might need to get yourself a little um, mini with a big oversized Revita pouch sticking out of it. <laughs> <laughs> We've definitely thought about it. What do you wish for people to think of when they hear the word Revita? We, when someone sees a Revita, we want them to think about becoming the best that they can be. And we have that on the very bottom of our package. So if you look at our, our new packaging that was just launched in a co-op, on the very bottom, it says on our original flavor divine, be the best that you could be. And that's fundamentally what our brand is all about, is we want to inspire others. We want to help other people. And that's, that's really fundamental to our brand and to our product, is we're giving someone you know, a healthy source of energy with good, clean ingredients that can help them be more productive. And then they can come to our brand. They can come to our community on social media. They can you know, reach out to Rob and I. We make ourselves very available. And we're all about making people feel good creating community and truly adding value to people's lives. And that's what we want Revita to stand for long-term. It's not often that I can, I can say that the people behind the brand are so genuinely living the brand because you guys are really authentic, true and, and nice guys. So thank you for being, being who you are and standing behind a great idea. I can't wish you anything but just tremendous success. You deserve it. Thank you so much, David. And we, we sincerely appreciate all the opportunities you've given us and all you do for entrepreneurs and, and people in our local community. You really do make a great impact. Mitch Jacobson and Rob Wing of Revita Energy Tea. That's Revita as in R-V-I-I-T-A. You'll read and see more about them at revitalize.com. Again, that's Revitalize with two eyes. You can order their products online or buy them at any Calgary co-op and a number of other retailers in Calgary. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for making us your background noise. It really means a lot.